This episode of the Power Connect podcast is brought to you by the book, An Inconvenient Apocalypse. And as a global culture, we have not yet provided a sense of meaning that motivates people to act on this crisis of consumption. Okay, that's where we're stuck. Now, a lot of people might agree with that, but again, want to suggest that if we just keep at it, if we, you know, get better solar panels and, and electric vehicles and all of this, that somehow we can magically maintain a population of 8 billion people consuming at roughly this level indefinitely. And all Wes and I are saying is it's time to give up that illusion. Welcome into the Power Connect Podcast. I'm your host, Fred Davis. Episode 40. That's right. The big 4-0 happens today on the program. Glad to have you guys all aboard. And I want to thank everybody Real quick, for all your support, the audience, the guests, everybody that has been a part of these first 40 episodes, it's happening quick. But again, it's because of you guys tuning in. We've had two incredible weeks. The buzz continues to grow. The guests continue to do what you guys do, which is just be absolutely awesome. And of course, we've had 40 great guests so far, so I don't want to you know cherry pick anybody. But of course, obviously, if this thing continues to roll along, word of mouth, and of course, uh, just getting the word out there uh, about the podcast has made a huge difference. And hey, we must be doing something right, because again, we've had two incredible weeks thus far. Again, huge shout out, Hawk Dunlap, uh, Brett Frazee, and then of course the the, the, the power couple, uh, the Wrights, Don Wright, and of course his lovely wife, Dr. Veronica Wright. Tremendous episodes thus far, and this thing just keeps going. All right, let's get down to today's episode. Mr. Robert Jensen, co-author of An Inconvenient Apocalypse, longtime writer, former professor at the University of Texas, Austin. And, of course, he's got 16 books to his credit, with Inconvenient Apocalypse being number 16. And, of course, him and Wes Jackson make a clear look. This is not some doomsday, doom and gloom scenario. I mean, it does present that. But again, there, there, there's references, there's historical data. And of course, they talk about two of the bigger parts that kind of have fueled all this, a crisis of consumption and a crisis of meaning. The earth is not going to explode. It's more about look. Society, as we've grown accustomed to it, is going to change and it's going to look very, very different depending upon where you are. Also talk about how your socioeconomic advantages might not be what you think they are. And he'll get into that. Also, too, why folks need to be preparing for the collapse and what life is going to be like after that, and that there's going to be a major population die-off. And I know folks are sitting there thinking to yourself, wow, this sounds like uh, a hell of an art, uh, a hell of an interview. It is. Trust me on that. Trust me on that. And then uh, one of the things that Robert and I really enjoyed talking about was how you know he's seeing growing sentiment in folks that share the same thoughts he does. They just don't want to say it out loud, and of course, he has no problem doing it. And of course, after you read this book, you'll understand why. So it's a fantastic read, and more importantly, there's a message of love. Sound crazy? Yes, I know, but just trust me on this. Listen to the interview, listen to what Robert has to say, and it all makes sense at the end. So without further ado, please welcome to the program, Mr. Robert Jensen. Of course, in the environmental movement, there's a lot of analyses that highlights the, the challenges, the crisis. I think we do take it a bit further to deepen that analysis and then be more realistic about what is possible. So even in environmental circles, the book wasn't necessarily well-received. We wrote the book and we talked to a lot of publishers about it. And I think a lot of people were nervous about that analysis. We knew the editor-in-chief from the University of Notre Dame Press, who had worked with Wes on a previous project, 
and uh, he was full speed ahead. He thought it was the kind of work that needed to be out there, and we had a great uh, experience with with him and his editors and and production people. So you know, the University of Notre Dame press would have not been the first place most people would think harsh, critical, radical environmental analysis would come from. But like so many things, uh, you find people willing to confront these realities in a lot of different places. In my career, I found them in lefty political circles. I found them in churches. I found them among ordinary people who aren't politically affiliated. As time goes on, more and more people realize that we are, you know, in a whole heap of trouble, trouble that isn't going to be easy to get out of. We're not going to invent our way out of it. There are, as, as we say in the book, problems without solutions. If by solutions, one means we have to continue our current lifestyles. And I think more and more people in a variety of places realize that's just not tenable. And so uh, we felt really lucky to land at Notre Dame and have had a great experience with them. Why yeah. do you think that it's gone so long where, especially right now with everything that's going on with the green push, with the, you know, the IRA just got passed a few weeks ago. I mean, if there was ever a time to confront these things, I mean, now seems to be that time. Why do you think people are so sheepish to confront what you and uh, Wes talk about in the book? Well, we talk in the book uh, about two different crises, the crisis of consumption and then the crisis of meaning. Uh, by crisis of consumption, we mean simply there are too many people on the planet consuming too much energy and too many materials. Now, we know that that consumption is not equitably distributed, but in the aggregate level, there's just too many of us and we're, we're taking up too much stuff. All right, That's the crisis of consumption. Now, why is it so hard to confront that? Well, we, we quote Wallace Stegner, who I think sums it up best. He says, the problem is the things that once possessed can't be done without. The way that that what were once luxuries become necessities. All right, so that's not a problem of any particular system or country or person. That's just part of human nature. That's the crisis of consumption. The reason we're not dealing well with the crisis of consumption, I think, is there is a general crisis of meaning. Now, by that, we don't mean that nobody has a deep sense of what it means to be human or there aren't traditions that provide that. But as a culture and as a global culture, we have not yet provided a sense of meaning that motivates people to act on this crisis of consumption. OK, that's where we're stuck. Now, a lot of people might agree with that. But again, want to suggest that if we just keep at it, if we, you know, get better, uh, you know, solar panels and and electric vehicles and all of this, that somehow we can magically maintain a population of 8 billion people consuming at roughly this level indefinitely. And all Wes and I are saying is it's time to give up that illusion, right? That there is simply no way that is biophysically possible as far as we can tell. And that means if, if you wanna reduce the, the book to a bumper sticker, the book is making an argument for fewer and less, fewer people, consuming less energy, less material. All right, now that goes against everything I grew up learning. I was born in 1958, and my entire life I was told that the future was the world of endless bounty. And the only questions were how to make sure that bounty got distributed fairly, equitably. Right? So there were problems within the human family, you know, racism and, and economic inequality and sexism and all those things. And those were our subject. But this land of you know unparalleled bounty would continue forever. 
Well, it's time to say no. It's not a, a future of ever-expanding bounty. It's a future of permanent contraction. The, the way we sum it up in the book is uh, borrowing a line from one of my favorite singer-songwriters, John Gorka, uh, who's got a song called The Old Future is Gone. The old future, the, the future I was told to imagine, you know, which is sometimes caricatured as flying cars and all that kind of stuff. But it was a future of endless expansion. And now we're dealing with a future of permanent contraction. Now, you know, imagine, Fred, that you're a politician and you're running for office. Uh, are you going to stand up and say, listen, my future constituents, I can guarantee you that by the time my policies are enacted, your material lifestyle will be cut in half. Well, that, that doesn't sell well, but it's not just that politicians don't want to say it. It's that, as I said, there's something about human nature in here, which is, remember, human beings are animals. And so it's the nature of organisms to maximize the power we extract from the environment to our benefit. And so, as Wes has said for a long time, we're just getting real good at what every organism does. And the problem is that our success at that is now going to be our greatest failure because we're undermining the capacity of ecosystems to maintain not only the lives of other organisms, but our own lives as well. You mentioned um, the gentleman Joseph Tainer in his book, The, mm -hmm. the Collapse of Complex Societies, right? And mm -hmm. I would argue, and I don't think I'm being, you know, uh, egregious or, you know, bombastic when you say, when I say this, but, you know, you pointed out, uh, what, about nine, nine or ten different things that he talks about in the book, uh, mm -hmm. that are signs of collapse. And I would argue that when you read damn near, we're, we're in part, you know, almost every single one of these in some form or fashion we're experiencing right now. Yes. And that's, that just tells us about the incredible capacity for denial the human species has. Joseph Tainer's book is, I think, a really important contribution uh, that, that should get more attention. And it points out, as you're saying, we're, we're not coming up with new ideas in a sense in this book. We're putting together what is already known with a kind of, uh, you could say, brutal honesty, but I, I think a brutal honesty uh, rooted in love, love for human beings, love for the larger living world. Wes and I, in that sense, are very positive, but the news has to be dealt with. So are we in collapse? Well, uh, if collapse means that you know existing systems no longer are going to function indefinitely, yes. Some parts of the world are suffering this much more if you're reading the news from Pakistan this week and the flooding. You know, to, to say that a third of the country is flooded is extraordinary. To recognize that the economic and political infrastructure of Pakistan is not uh, able to handle that. It seems to me that we're talking about a society in collapse. But the first world, the affluent world, a place like the United States, you know, isn't far behind because we're not talking about regional problems or, or local problems. We're talking about global systems that no longer function in a rational way to promote human well-being, not to mention the well-being of other creatures. I mean, let's just use, uh, you know, and some of the things that he talks about that you guys point out in the book uh, when it comes to signs of collapse, a lower degree of stratification and social differentiation, uh, less economic and occupational specialization of individuals, groups and territories. Take case in point what happened, um, you know, and here it is. We're, we're, we're recording this on a Thursday, September 7th or September 8th. And then you had, uh, you know, a 19 year old kid. And I can say kid because I've got a 19 year old daughter who goes on Facebook Live and in Memphis and is, is killing people and, mm -hmm. and, and Facebook living it while he's doing it. 
you know, in, in some way, that's a societal collapse, is it not? When yeah. you, I mean, when sure. we would have ever thought that in, you know, I mean, that's something that you would, we would have seen in a movie back then, but that actually happened in a, in a yeah. civilized United States of America, a 19 year old kid killing people on social media. Yeah. So mass killings in the United States, sometimes, as you point out, by young people, uh, certainly is an indicate is not an indication of a healthy society. Now, a lot of people scramble around to assess blame. Well, what's the problem? Well, the problem is, you know, a lack of religion. The problem is the wrong religion, you know, all sorts of things. But I think you're right to say this is simply an indication of a society that no longer works. Right? And it no longer works on a variety of criteria. It no longer works to promote the mental health of young people. I mean, we're, you know, a crisis of, of depression, anxiety, um, a, a sense of dissatisfaction with bodies. I mean, all sorts of crazy stuff going on that has now become so endemic that, you know, people are building school programs to deal with it. You talk about the ecological crises, which, as we point out and you referenced, it has been dramatic for decades, but now is simply unavoidable. You talk about the fact that the political system doesn't answer the desires and aspirations of a large percentage of people, both on the right and the left. Okay, so what do we have? We have systems that are not working. So rather than you know assess blame in a particular sense, I think what Wes and I are saying is let's step back and say maybe the big picture here, capitalism within large nation states, even with some modicum of democracy, is no longer capable of providing for people, providing for ecological stability. And so we have to think about change. But the problem is, of course, the change we have to think about is on a huge level. And human beings don't tend to be good at seeing long-term consequences and adjusting systems to deal with those consequences. And so that's what we try to do, to walk through a way to think about the future, even though we realize it's going to be difficult to even talk about these things in public, let alone pass new policies and laws about it. Walk the folks through a little bit then, because, I mean, people are probably listening to this thinking, okay, well, then if this is what the book's about, then, you know, if if we're all going to die anyway, then I guess what's the point of reading? Let's go ahead and just, you know, live it up while we can. But you do talk about, you know, resilience versus, uh, you know, robust solutions. And again, these are dramatic solutions, because, again, we we do have much more dramatic issues than I think people want to face. Tell the folks at home a little bit about what the difference is between resilience versus robust. And you use a great example when you talk about EVs. And that's something that, again, is getting a lot of attention right now, but maybe you know, EVs, yes, they're kind of being perceived as this end-all, be-all solution to fossil fuel cars, but there's something bigger at play here when you use, when you substitute a fossil fuel car for an EV. Yeah, so following some other writers, we talk about the difference between robust and resilient as a robust system is one that's hard to knock down. A resilient system is one that when it gets knocked down, it comes back, right? And so investing in robustness so right now we have a you know personal vehicle-centered transportation system in the United States. The problem is burning all that petroleum is exacerbating global warming. So the answer is electronic vehicle or electric vehicles. Well, that's a, a way to make the trans the personal car transportation system more robust, but it makes the whole system less resilient because of course EVs are not carbon neutral. When people say, Well, I'm driving an EV, I'm carbon neutral. No, sorry. The mining the processing, the manufacturing of of all of the things that go into an electric vehicle requires fossil fuels. You can't do it with a solar panel. All right, so EVs are dangerous in that sense. But more important, the problem is not just what we power our cars with. It's that there are too many cars and we become too used to easy 
relatively cheap transportation. So the idea that you can get in your car and drive 100 miles to go visit somebody, well, that would have been crazy, you know, for most of human history, but now we do it without thinking. Well, that's not going to be possible forever. And so rather than trying to tell people, well, listen, you can keep living this way, except all you have to do is buy an electric vehicle. What Wes and I are saying is we have to all accept that we're going to change the way we live. We're going to travel less, for instance. We're going to have to learn to, as Wes says, stay home and be decent. In the world I grew up, staying home was boring. If you hadn't been to Europe, you, you were a hick. You know, travel was where it was at. Well, we're going to have to change that cultural norm, at least in societies where that's become obvious. Cheap and convenient air travel. And I pause for the, the laughter because, of course, it doesn't feel so cheap or convenient anymore. But again, the idea that you can get on a plane and go halfway across the world is going to be unavailable for most of us. And that's fine. We just have to retool our expectations. And Wes and I are both older. I'm 64. He's 86. So staying home and trying to be decent is a lot easier than when I was probably 22 and wanted to see the world. But that said, it is possible to reorient your perspective and change. Now, the problem is, of course, one or two people doing it doesn't really fix the problem. The problem is, how do you change the cultural norms? And there we're back to that crisis of meaning. We have to start talking about what it means to be a human being, what it means to be satisfied. And, you know, a lot of us grew up in a culture where chasing uh, success, which was either status or money for most of us, right, was how you defined a good life. Well, that ain't going to cut it anymore. So again, you're going at the heart of, you know, the economic system and the way most of us were raised. Um, you know, in that sense, I guess if somebody said, well, your book is anti-American, Wes and I would say, yes, exactly. Anti, anti the current conception of what it means to be an American. So more importantly then, I mean, like I said, you say this collapse is going to happen. What exactly, I mean, and I know you talk about in the book that, you know, again, this you're, you guys aren't in the business of making predictions, but how do you see this playing out? Well, I think it will play out differently in different places, obviously, with many contingencies we can't predict, uh, especially, you know, climate and weather contingencies, uh, you know, as natural disasters with the natural in quote now, because we're exacerbating them. It's, it's hard to predict, but you can see COVID gave us a, a glimpse into what happens when there are shortages, supply chain problems. We've built, again, we've built a worldwide system that simply doesn't work for most people. I think there's a lot of reasons to be worried. Let's just take the question of how people react in crisis, uh, like a natural disaster. Um, do people have the capacity to come together, even with folks they don't even know, in community collaboration to ensure the, the survival of everyone. Sure, you, that's possible. You see it all the time. Do people often, when under stress, off, also have the potential to come together, exacerbate conflict, and take up arms to try and get what little they can of what's left? Yeah, that happens too. So that's why Wes and I think this stuff is important to talk about now, because I don't think you can rely on the better angels of our nature, that when things get tough, suddenly we're all going to become better people. If anything, I would say the betting money is that we're all going to become uh, nastier people. Okay, So that's one of the reasons we don't try to predict. But I think the current political state of the U.S. doesn't lead to you know, happy assumptions about how this is going to play out. Again, we always emphasize this will play out differently for different people depending on 
their resources. So affluent people have built into their lives certain kinds of protection, but that protection isn't guaranteed forever. At some point, we believe even the affluent people of this world are going to face real struggles for basic resources, okay? And there's a kind of irony in this that in some sense, people who now live with less tend to be better at knowing how to live with less. You know, the people who are going to be really lost are people who buy everything. If you've never produced any of your own food and all of a sudden the grocery store shelves are empty, you're in trouble. Right? And I'm in that category. For a long time, I didn't, I'd never grown a, a bit of my own food. Right? If you don't know how to repair basic mechanical objects and all of a sudden there's no you know, service people to call, well, then you're in trouble. So this, this is going to play out in ways we can't predict. Again, I don't want to be glib about oh, well, poor people are going to have it easier. That's not what I mean. They're suffering, and that suffering is going to be widely shared at some point if we stay on the current trajectory we're on. Right? So can any of this change? Sure. Wes and I don't think the basic move toward collapse at this point can be avoided. There's just too many forces already in play, too much environmental degradation already baked in, that it's hard to imagine you know, us pulling off a what do they call it? A Hail Mary pass. It took me a while to remember my sports metaphor there. There are no Hail Marys coming from my point of view, right? There's just the hard work of learning to do, in a sense, with less, to be comfortable with less. You know, there's an old saying, well, you know, more is, or less is more, that when you don't have as much, you have other things. And, and we get that, but our phrase is, less is less, but less is okay, okay? So if you if you don't have access to some of the things that have become necessities like cell phones and and online entertainment and video games all right that is less when you take that away you have less but less is okay and there's way to build meaningful lives now Wes has an advantage over me I was born in 1958 he was born in the the great depression so Wes lived through a period of time in which you know on the farm they had to make do with what they had and he's got that experience, as do older people, as do people living in areas without the affluence we're talking about. So there are different skills that people have. We have to learn to draw out the best that we have to offer and be open to new ways of living. This is what Wes and I call the, the saving remnant option. There's not going to be 8 billion people on this planet consuming all this energy indefinitely. At some point, there is going to be you know, I would say it bluntly, a human die-off of proportions we are not really prepared to understand. I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime, in my child's lifetime, who knows. But at some point, there will be a human population after the fall, after the collapse, after these systems no longer are operational. Right? And so part of what Wes and I are saying is in addition to trying to pass new laws and limit climate change and do all the things that are important, we also should be thinking about the long term, what comes on the other side, on the downside of the curve. You know, if you think of an energy curve, you know, with massive increases in the consumption of energy over the last two, three centuries, and that curve is going to head back down. And so we borrow the, the concept of a saving remnant from, from scripture to suggest, you know, not in a theological way, but in a secular way, that we should start thinking about not how do we keep this system going forever. But how do we start to understand what it means to be human on the other side? Whew. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> oh, man, that is, 
again, that's something that a lot of folks just aren't ready to to confront. And yeah. and, and I it, go ahead. But but let me let me just make it more tangible. This is just a personal story, but you know, I lived in cities most of my life. I was not connected to the natural world very much. I was busy hustling and bustling like people in cities are. And when I retired, eventually, uh, my wife and I moved to northern New Mexico in a very rural area. Now, we're not farmers, but we do garden and we have a small fruit orchard on the property we, we live on. In the last two years that I've lived here full time, I have really recalibrated my daily life. I spend much more time outside. I spend much more time doing manual labor than I've I've said, you know, I've done more work in the last two years with my body than I did in the previous 20. All right. Now, I wasn't raised to find meaning in that, right? I didn't live my adult life finding meaning in that. But when I came here, I immediately understood the joy of all of this. And I do now find meaning. I have different relationships with my neighbors than I had in the city. You know, yesterday I spent three hours carrying wheelbarrows full of horse manure from my neighbor who has horses over to my house for the compost pile, right? I thoroughly enjoyed that. <laughs> now, if 20 years ago, you would have said, hey, Jensen, you're going to have a lot of fun hauling horse manure in a wheelbarrow, I would have been doubtful, right? So these are the kind of things, now, you know, I, I don't want to be, again, glib. Okay, I got old, I retired, now I get to play around in, you know, the orchard, everything's going to be fine. I'm just saying that we're capable of finding joy and meaning in new ways, and as we are forced to find those new ways because of the downpowering that is coming, we just have to remember we can do it. And we can do it, of course, not just individually, but collectively. We can do it with members of our community. And eventually, we can even think about what it means for public policy. We can do it as citizens as well. You know, Wes, as I said, has been living in this way his entire adult life, even when he was in a city, even when he was a big deal professor. You know, he always had those connections to a different way of living and being in the world. I'm not saying my answer is the answer for everybody. I'm saying we need to start talking about this because when you can no longer fly on an airplane to see the Super Bowl, right, which you've been looking forward to all year, when that's no longer available to, to look forward to, we got to understand what is available. And my experience the last couple of years has been hopeful. I mean, I, I'm not being, you know, naive, but I do think it reminds us what we can strive for. Do you think you're going to run into a push and pull of folks saying, well, rather than, you know, prevent or rather than push for life or prepare for life after the collapse, maybe we're busy, you know, let's put our, our resources yeah. towards preventing the collapse. And that's sure. kind of what, you know, and you, with, with whether it's the Paris Accord, whether it's COP26, whether it's net zero goals. I mean, I would venture to say, and just from the, like I said, the 160 episodes I've done, that's what would kind of be the resounding feeling I would think people would have yeah. is that, you know, no, no, we're going to prevent this because if we do these things, if we get to net zero, if we do the carbon capture, the EVs, yada, 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 then we won't have to prepare for this. It's great, yeah. Rob, don't get it wrong, but let's see what we can do to prevent that. Sure. And I think let a hundred flowers bloom when there's no obvious way to fix a problem, then let people do what makes sense for them. And I have lots of friends who work on exactly the projects you're talking about, and I encourage them and celebrate them. All Wes and I are saying in an inconvenient apocalypse is that there's a good chance that even with all of that activity, we are not going to forestall something that should be called collapse. And therefore, for people who want to think about it at this other level, here's a book that tells you it's okay to think about it. 
right? Here's a book that gives you some concepts and some ideas about how to think about it. I've done a lot of public speaking in my life. And every time I've talked like this in public, and I'm a little nervous thinking people are going to throw tomatoes at me and tell me to go home and shut up, I see a lot of heads nodding. What that tells me is not the majority of people, but a significant minority of people are already thinking along these lines. And part of the problem is they're afraid to talk about it because, you know, you if you want to break up a dinner party, you know, make sure you bring up collapse as a question. And before you know it, people are saying, well, I, I'll skip dessert. And, you know, they're heading for the exits. Right? So people don't always have a place to think through and talk about this. And that's all we're offering is saying that in addition to the more short-term projects people might be involved with, there's nothing wrong with committing some of your time energy to this kind of long-term project of rethinking what it means to be human in a dramatically different future. I've read some of the reviews of the book. I think it goes to what you're saying. I think a lot of folks don't want to hear it. Uh, what's been kind of the feedback that you've gotten from folks that have read the book and from people you've talked to, and whether it be in environmental circles, business circles, uh, academic circles, what's been, uh, what, what, what have people had to say to you and Wes about what what inconvenient apocalypse has had to say? Yeah. Well, not surprisingly, it runs the gamut. I've already lost a couple of friends, I think. No, and I'm serious. I don't, mean, I I don't mean to laugh, but I mean, I, I, uh, that's, that's unfortunate. Yeah. You know, so I come from the political left, and one of the points we make in the book is that the current economic system, what we call corporate capitalism, is not capable of finding a way to avoid the, the, the worst, okay? But we also say that capitalism is a problem, but not the problem, that the, the problem of human carbon seeking, of humans taking, uh, you know, all this extraordinary energy out of the system— it goes back a long ways. This is Wes's influence. Wes points to the beginning of agriculture, where we started the ecological drawdown of the planet. Ever since human beings started planting grains like wheat and rice on an annual basis and eroding, eroding soil and depleting soil fertility, we've been on the way down. This is what Wes calls the 10,000-year problem of agriculture. So yes, the current economic system and its insane consumption and its demand for growth is a problem, but it's not the problem. The problem goes back more deeply, and it's part of human nature. Well, a lot of my friends on the left don't like that analysis. And so, um, you know, I, I, I get pushback. On the other hand, as you said, a lot of people are grateful for somebody saying what they've been thinking. That's sort of my specialty. I, I say aloud what people have been thinking, and then people beat up on me. You know, it's like sometimes I feel like the the punching bag, and that's fine. That's a role to play to say, listen, a lot of people feel this. I'm going to say it out loud, and then as a result, a lot of people are going to be angry. Okay, that's the range, and that's what we expected. But we're we're glad we did the book, and we believe that we all have to keep talking about this. And again, a lot of people, you know, will say, well, here here we have Doctor Doom, you know, preaching the end of the world. Well, we're not preaching the end of the world. The world is going to go on without us. The planet is going to survive human beings. Right? But we need to go forward. And and it's not just all gloom and doom. There is joy in this in some sense. People often ask me, well, how do you get out of bed in the morning? And I say, I don't know, but I do get out of bed. Right? I get out of bed. I'm up early every morning. You know, I take the dogs out. I start working. For whatever reason, that provides for me meaning. Right? I try to, to identify work, whether it's physical labor or, or writing, that I believe is important. I do it with a lot of pleasure. And 
It doesn't mean every moment of it is fun, but rather than, you know, look for platitudes about why we should do this, I would point to the way Wes and I just do it. And we do it, I think, and I, I use this term earlier, and it's important, with love. Love for other people, love for the larger living world. We end the book, actually, with one of my favorite quotes. It's from the Brothers Karamazov. I like to quote it in part because then people think I read dense Russian novels all the time, but I don't. The character in the book is talking about how basically life is hard. And he says, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared with love in dreams. You know, if you want to be airy-fairy and talk about love in some sort of, you know, uh, romantic notion and keep it at, at that up higher level, well, then, you know, love is wonderful. But love in action, that is, when you act on what you really do love in this world, it's a harsh and dreadful thing sometimes. We all know that. We all have experienced it in our personal lives, how if you really love someone, sometimes you have to confront them. Sometimes it's hard. Well, that's the human condition, but it's still love, and it's still the motivation for getting up every day right, and trying to make the world better in ways that you can make it better and still find for yourself some sense of, of joy, right? And I use the term joy instead of pleasure because, you know, I got nothing against pleasure, but pleasure in some sense is a rather superficial concept. Joy is, is for me, much deeper. And if people say, well, that's hard, then I, I always quote Wendell Berry, who's, you know, a writer I've admired for many, many years and is a personal friend of Wes's. Wendell has a, a beautiful line where he talks about the human estate of grief and joy. That's where we live. That's where we've always lived. The human estate is grief and joy. And of course, if you try to reject the grief, you will diminish your capacity for joy. So all of a sudden I'm getting poetic and philosophical and I'm neither a poet nor a philosopher, so I'm, I better rein this in. But I do think that the book is harsh, sometimes even dreadful, but is rooted in love. That's a and look, I'm not saying this because I've got, I've got you on, but again, I've, I'm, I'm halfway through it and I... I, I it, it's stuff you need to, I mean, I don't know. And maybe I'm in that minority that you talk about, you know, that guy that, you know, says the things other people are thinking that doesn't want to say, but I've, I've certainly enjoyed it. And I, it's one of those things that, you know, you're either going to get freaked out and, and, and quiver over it or, or say, yeah, we do need to do something about this. What's the, what was the, of all the things you've written of everything you've done, where does this book rank for you? Well, in some ways it might, I might argue it's the most important book I've ever worked on. Although, I've written a lot about tough social issues, everything from the violence and racism and misogyny and pornography to, you know, critiques of American militarism and, and wars. All of it's important, but it might be that I'm getting old, <laughs> but there is a kind of sadness I think I carry, knowing that even though I'm old enough that I may get to my grave without living through the great disruption that's coming, I don't have that same assumption about my kid. And there is a certain sadness that that made this book special in that sense. So, you know, none of us know the value of what we've done when we're doing it. You know, if you want to assess what's important, it's good to wait a couple hundred years <laughs> and look it back in hindsight. So all I can say is that this, this kind of question about how to avoid the worst of collapse, how to deal with the inevitability that existing systems aren't going to serve us much longer feels like the most important question on 
on the agenda for me right now. And so this book does does mean a lot to me for that reason. Get you out of here with this. So what, uh, you know, again, you're, you're 64, Wes is 86. What's next for this dynamic duo? Well, for me, what's next is completing the plum harvest. I got to go pick plums when we're done. The pears are ripe and I'm processing pears. I'm making a lot of dried pears. And then the apples come in about two or three weeks. Then you get ready for winter. And then uh, I, I think Wes and I, I know Wes is, Wes and I will probably work on books separately at this point. He wants to, to write about what it means to truly downpower a society. And I'm, I'm waiting to, to form a plan till I get all those apples in. The apple harvest, the good news is the apple harvest is going to be great here. Our trees are full. The bad news is the apple harvest is going to be great, and I don't know what to do with all these apples. Okay, so let me just play junior psychologist here then for a second. So has this book kind of fundamentally changed how you view things or just kind of your lot or purpose on this this earth and kind of what your direction is next? No, I think this book started around 1988 when I first read Wes Jackson, long before I knew him. So this is a 30, 40-year process, and for Wes, you know, even 20 years before that. Wes was a university professor for a while, and in the late 1960s, he started devising a program he called Survival Studies. Wes has been thinking about this for more than a half a century. And so this is a kind of slow movement toward recognizing the way it's been ain't going to be forever. Uh, And for me, that coincided with getting older and having, luckily, the freedom and the opportunity to shift the way I live day to day. Uh, I don't regret all the years I spent, you know, doing political organizing and and teaching and and traveling a lot to do public speaking. But I do think that one of the things is to recognize that, you know, as we age, our role in the world shifts. I think too many people hold on to what they're used to. And if I've done one thing well, I would say I've made a very good transition from being uh, a professor to being, um, you know, a guy who takes care of an orchard. And luckily, it's been fun. You know, it's a lot easier to do these things when it's fun. But I do think the the larger lesson is to be open to change. You know, a lot of people have pointed out the only thing that's guaranteed in the world is change. And our own mortality is part of that. Well, also, the mortality of systems. You know, the rule of history is no system lasts forever. The last time somebody tried to pretend that, you know, there was talk of a thousand-year Reich. It didn't end very well, right? So we know that the systems we are currently living in won't go on forever. We know our own lives, our own individual lives are temporary. And with that, I think it's, at least for me, easier to shift as conditions call for a shift. Um, You know, in some sense, we're making it up as we go along. We're doing our best. And that's another thing actually probably the most important part of the book is to avoid trying to claim the moral high ground. Uh, You know, we write that the moral high ground is a dangerous place to stand even when it's warranted. So if you are doing the right thing for the right reasons and you got it all figured out, it's good to retain a little bit of humility because um, we're all kind of making it up as we go along. It doesn't mean we don't look at the science. It doesn't mean we don't do our best to formulate a really coherent analysis. But we recognize human failure and human fragility, and we try to be kind. And I think that's one of the things I've learned most from Wes is he's a deeply humble and kind human being. And I suspect that has something to do with growing up on a farm in the Depression. I, I don't know. But I'm trying to deepen my own humility 
I'm not as smart as I think, and I never thought I was that smart to start with, and trying to learn to be kinder. Those are very basic human values. You, if you paid attention in Sunday school, you got them. Uh, but sometimes we have to relearn these things, and, and that's, that's my quest at the moment. Thank you for that, Mr. Robert Jensen. You can catch all of the Power Connect episodes over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and, of course, over on the website, thepowerconnect.net. Leave us a five-star rating. It helps with the algorithm. And we just think we do a dadgum good job. We've got great episodes coming up for you. We've got Mr. Devin Paris from Solar Foundations USA coming up uh, this week. We've also got Magnus Thomason from High Star. And we've got Mr. Brad Wells from Schneider Electric joining us next week. If you want to become a part of the podcast, give us a shout-out. Connect with us on LinkedIn. In Fred Davis and the Power Connect, Fred Davis and or the Power Connect, and of course you can also reach out to us by email, Fred at thepowerconnect.net, Fred at thepowerconnect.net. Shout out once again to the audience, the guests, and everybody for making this show possible. You've been listening to the Power Connect podcast, connecting the energy transition, one conversation at a time. Wake up, all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it. If we are all in the hand, the only thing we have to do.